Well, greetings. Greetings to you all and uh, from the rolling hills of Devonshire. It is, of course, as it always is, a huge delight to be with you, the Kingsgate family, of whom I am very fond. And uh, it's very generous, it's gracious, it is even foolhardy of your leaders to invite me to join you yet again. And I can only say it's delightful. And I love imagining you wherever you are, watching or listening, or indeed now, I think, even gathering together in some form or other as things ease up a little across the land. Certainly in some of our vineyard churches, people are meeting together again and are rather loving it, if only to check out the fashion statements that our masks have now become. However, we are relatively still locked down on a farm in Dartmoor and uh, as I look outside, the skies are blue, the grass is green, the calves are carving, we have 250 lambs, the primroses are heaving in the hedges and so basically there are worse places and the Lord remains where he has ever been, seated on the throne and all is not lost. So we are grateful too, are we not, that we can still meet together by Zoom or internet or whatever, and uh, what used to be my most dreaded form of communication has now, of course, become my new best friend, which is why I can be with you now. And speaking of friends, you will know, and I'm sure I've told you before, that John and I reckon Dave and Karen, your wonderful leaders, to be among our most highly respected and dearly loved friends, and so our greetings to them too. Now, I understand that we're following a new theme, Revive Us. And, of course, taken originally from the psalmist and the cry of his heart, Lord, when will you revive us again? And when was that a cry ever more apposite than it is today? And so I'd like to look, if I may, at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, which even by the action-packed, fun-filled standards of the book of Acts, dizzying heights as they are, this must be one of the most wonderful sections of all, so I am very thrilled. And on this rare occasion, for me, possibly even a first, I'm going to um, speak out of Acts chapter 2 as it is in the message, which is not usually something that I would do. But on this occasion, there's an immediacy about something that is otherwise quite familiar that is, I think, quite a good thing. So if you will, or if you'd like to follow along, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to, I think, about 17, and we'll rattle through. When the Feast of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Very significant. Without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, gale force. No one could tell where it came from. It filled the whole building. Then, like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks, and they started speaking in a number of different languages as the Spirit prompted them. There were many Jews staying in Jerusalem just then, devout pilgrims from all over the world. When they heard the sound, they came on the run, and then when they heard, one after another, their own mother tongues being spoken, they were thunderstruck. They couldn't for the life of them figure out what was going on, and they kept saying, aren't these all Galileans? How come we're hearing them talk in our various mother tongues? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, visitors from Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, immigrants from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, even Cretans and Arabs. They're speaking our languages, describing God's mighty works. The heads were spinning. They couldn't make head nor tail of it. They talked back and forth, confused. What's going on? Others joked they're drunk on cheap wine. That's when Peter stood up. <laughs> 
and he, backed by the other 11, he spoke out with bold urgency. Fellow Jews, all of you who are visiting Jerusalem, listen carefully and get this story straight. These people aren't drunk, as some of you suppose. They haven't had time to get drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. This is what the prophet Joel announced would happen. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on every kind of people. Your sons will prophesy, also your daughters. Your young men will see visions, your old men dream dreams. When the time comes, I'll pour out my spirit. On those who serve me, men and women both. They'll prophesy. I'll set wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billowing smoke. The sun turned black and the moon blowed red. Before the day of the Lord arrives, the day tremendous and marvellous, and whoever calls out for help to me, God, will be saved. Fantastic. Fantastic. So what was going on? The Holy Spirit was poured out. The events of Pentecost, what actually happened, were extraordinary and they were very physical. Leaping flames like wildfire, howling gale-force winds, a cacophony of languages. These things were experienced, they were seen, they were heard, they were felt. Little wonder a crowd gathered. Now, Jerusalem would have been full of pilgrims already for the Feast of Pentecost, so it was all very strategic. They would have travelled from all these different parts of the known world. And what makes it so significant is that their nations were named and their own languages were spoken by unlettered men like Peter and the Apostles. Now, I think this was an extraordinary strategy. It was nothing less and it was beautifully choreographed by the Holy Spirit. For God poured out his Spirit on pilgrims, and they would be going home, and they would be telling of everything that they'd seen and heard on that day. They would be spreading the news. And I love that verse. It reminds me of the verse later in the book of Acts, where do you remember Peter and John were hauled up in front of the Sanhedrin, the leaders and the elders and so forth of the people of the Jews. And uh, they were commanded not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus again. And I love their reply. Peter and John said to them, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And you see, I think it was exactly the same with those pilgrims as they made their way home. They couldn't help it. Don't you sometimes wonder, don't you sometimes marvel? as I do, at the way the Lord has used and continues to use history and geography and technology and man's inspired inventiveness, every possible means of communication to get his message across. The Romans had built roads along which the pilgrims could pace, gossiping all the way of what they had seen and heard as they went, a bit like the Canterbury pilgrims decades, no, centuries later. Centuries even later, there was another explosion of the church with the invention of the printing press and, as it was called, the propagation of the gospel as it went out. And then, of course, more recently, there has been this extraordinary development among the Internet, which the Lord has been pleased to use in ways never even thought of when I first came to Christ and I would suggest even slightly unimaginable this time last year. But I digress.
I love it, but I digress. Back to Jerusalem on that day. The people came running, we're told. They were thunderstruck. They couldn't for the life of them work out what was going on. They knew that these disciples were Galileans who were notoriously uneducated, unlettered working men and women. And yet these same men were seemingly speaking languages, the languages of the Parthians and the Medes and the Egyptians and everybody else, even the Cretans, who were historically a fairly despised group of people. And they were all hearing this news spoken out in their own languages. Now, the age-old debate, of course, has always been, did the apostles speak those languages or was the miracle in the way that the people heard those languages? Consider. The languages were their mother tongues. Now, that's different from the precious gift of tongues, which, of course, we all love and which is expostulated more later in Corinthians by St. Paul. So where was the miracle? Who's to say? What can we say? other than that, something miraculous and history-making did take place on that day. And we've been living in the fallout ever since. Their heads were spinning, we're told. They couldn't make head or tail of it. They could hardly be blamed for thinking that the disciples had been drinking. At which point, Peter jumps to his feet. He raises his voice above the hubbub and he begins to explain. Now, remember who this is. Only weeks before, this man had been cowering furtively, denying point blank he had ever known Jesus at all. And now, bold as brass, he preaches possibly the greatest sermon of all time. He spoke with bold urgency, we're told. Listen carefully, he said to them. Listen carefully to what I say. These people haven't been drinking, as you suspect. It's far too early in the morning for crying out loud. That last little bit isn't actually in the Greek, but it's sort of the feel of it. The Holy Spirit had indeed been poured out, exactly as Jesus had said it would be. I think you looked at that verse again last week. You will receive power, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, interesting, and in all in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth, all the nations that were named, and since then, of course, every nation on the face of the earth. Pentecost was extraordinary and it was all about power. Nobody who was there on the day and no one who has ever read the account since could argue with that or doubt it. In fact, centuries before even in the Old Testament, this had been anticipated. The prophet Joel had prophesied, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, both men and women. And now, here in Jerusalem, the same Holy Spirit has been poured out, unleashed in a startling way. So much so that these ordinary people had received God's power just because the Holy Spirit had come upon them. Perhaps most spectacularly of all, as an example, if you like, as a prototype, we have Peter changed from a coward to a champion, from a pathetic figure to a preacher extraordinaire, and all within a day. And as so often with Christianity, experience, what they went through that day, was going hand in hand with explanation. This must be one of the most dramatic instances, I think, in the whole Bible, of the marriage between experience and explanation. People were living through an experience, obviously, seen, heard, and felt, 
And now came the explanation. Scripture was being fulfilled, as Peter told them, in front of the crowd, as it came running towards the noise and the excitement and the incredulity of it all. Scripture was being fulfilled as Peter began his explanation of the experience, and he said, this is what the prophet Joel prophesied. Listen, people, this has all been thought of before. And then, of course, later on, St. Paul, talking to the Romans, said, you know, um, what does the scripture say? It was always the point to which they went back. Scripture was then and is now our gold standard, our plumb line, our magnetic north, if you like. Scripture is everything. We need an experience of the Lord, but we need an explanation too. And that's what Peter modelled right here. More recently, there's a wonderful, one of our favourite friends, theologians, uh, priests and pastors. He's a man called Simon Ponsonby, who works at St Aldate's in Oxford. And he writes a lot, and he's written this rather beautifully. He says, the scriptures lead me to be a charismatic. The spirit leads me back to the scriptures. They're married. They go hand in hand. Rowan Williams a name you may know, the previous Archbishop of Canterbury, who was a poet and an academic and a pretty towering intellect, truth to tell. And in a moment of wonderful simplicity for him, he wrote, to understand the scriptures, we need the spirit. A friend of mine recently praying in a prayer meeting said, Lord, would you anoint the memory of scripture in our hearts? And so, as the Holy Spirit was so manifestly, indeed physically poured out, having experienced it all, Peter then explained it. And the first place he went, as I say, is the Old Testament scriptures. This, he says, is what the prophet Joel announced would happen. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on every kind of people. Your sons will prophesy and your daughters too. Your young men will dream, dream no, see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And this was, in a way, the most explicit foretelling of the coming of the Spirit, and I love it all, not least because it embraces us all. Talk about um, unity, inclusivity of the Spirit and the diversity of the people upon whom he came, whom he empowered, upon whom he was poured out. Every kind of people, we're told, sons and daughters, old and young, I'll pour out my spirit on all who serve me, men and women. The ultimate equaliser. Biblically speaking, of course, Joel then goes on to talk about the last days. And biblically speaking, we are already living in the last days. Those days since Jesus came. They are the last days. They are the days in between the first and the second comings of Jesus. Now imagine, if you will, and this is the way I find it easiest to understand, imagine, if you will, a huge suspension bridge with two great twin towers, okay? Bear with me. Think of the Severn Crossing. Think of the bridge across the Menai Straits. Think of the great bridge over the Forth River in Scotland. All are held up by two mighty towers and the bridge from one to the other suspended in the middle between them. In your mind's eye, Imagine as you approach it the first tower, and that represents the first coming of Jesus. His exemplary life, his excruciating death, his extraordinary resurrection. And then journey on from that point in which we all live towards the second tower, which represents his return, his second coming, when all will be made well, 
There will be a new heaven and a new earth. That's what, Joel, that's what the prophet Joel was looking forward to. Signs and wonders. The sun blackened, the moon blood red. And then he said, before the day of the Lord, that's the second coming, arrives the day tremendous and marvellous. That's what we look forward to. So we live, actually, the theologians tell us, and you might want to show off this little bit of knowledge, we live in the eschatological tension in between the first hour and the second hour. Redeemed, saved, everything else, given all the hope that we need on this side of heaven and beyond because of the first hour, the first coming, and looking forward to the return and the completion of all things. It's an extraordinary place to be. And then, of course, Peter goes on. He goes on to preach the scriptures. This brusque, uneducated, unlettered fisherman now has a new level of energy, a new ability to do things he could never have done before. Have you ever heard people say, I've never done such things. I never knew that could happen. Peter had been so changed, so empowered, so filled with the Spirit. And with this new power unleashed, poured out on him, he presented to the crowd the good news of Jesus, what we sometimes call the gospel, in a brilliantly ordered, rationally argued, masterfully presented way. So what are we to draw from all of this? I think there are one or two things that we might. Consider, if you like, what the outpouring looked like in the person of Peter, and then recognise that he was a dead, ordinary working man, a bit like you and me. But also realise that with the spirit poured out upon him, he, he moved into an extraordinary place where we can be too. Because first of all, the Holy Spirit changes us. Even in the Old Testament times, Saul said to Samuel, Samuel, the spirit, uh, Saul, the spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and you will be changed into a different person. Same was true of Gideon, the wimp, do you remember, who became a warrior. Michael Green wrote in his wonderful book on the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God came upon Christian individuals in order to create in them a quality of life that would otherwise be beyond their powers. The scriptures and the whole of history since are littered with examples and instances in people's lives, even the lives of your own Kingsgate family, where this is true. And such qualities of life are so attractive. They're so winsome. They so point to Jesus. They're so what the world is looking for. They're so what the world is disappointed when they look at us and don't find it. That's why we just carry this thing. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to fill us, to overwhelm us, to be poured out on us so that we can live for him and represent him to a world that is desperate, never more so. I had a friend I had a wonderful experience of the Holy Spirit one weekend. It may have been an Alpha weekend, actually. These things tend to happen. And she, she wrote this to me during the week. She said, I felt different this morning. Hopeful, more free, peaceful. Now, the colleague I share an office with, she said, knows I'm a Christian and we've talked before. She said to me this morning, you're different today. You're glowing. I don't know what it is, said her friend, but there's something around you that's amazing. I feel great and peaceful just sitting next to you. Being in your presence, I don't know what it is, but it is amazing and I love some of it. Don't you long for those moments. But you see, that's the sort of thing that happens when the Holy Spirit comes on us and changes us. Archbishop William Temple said, No one can be indwelt by the Spirit of God and keep that Spirit to himself. Where the Spirit is, he flows forth. And if there is no flowing forth, he's not there. The Holy Spirit changes us. Secondly, the Holy Spirit empowers us. You must surely agree that Pentecost is all about power. 
the words of Jesus, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He empowers us to believe at all. He empowers us to hold on to what we believe. He empowers us to live each day from morning to night, gives us power to stand our ground, keep our heads when all around are losing theirs. Hold our nerve as believers, hang in through the most grisly year that most of us have probably ever experienced in our lives. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live those days from morning to night, to speak up for our faith, to take every opportunity that is offered us, to carry out the mandate Jesus gave us when he told us to pray for the sick and to feed the hungry, to care for the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to go to the prisons, to set free the demonized. These are all things that it is within our capacity to do because we can be empowered by his Holy Spirit. And have we ever needed it more? Despite a dreadful year, the Lord is not mocked. Remarkably enough, thanks to the combination of the Holy Spirit and using of the internet, as he likes to do, people are finding faith and being encouraged in their most holy faith. Churches are growing. Don't buy into the nonsense that they're not, that they're floundering. Churches are growing. Christians are the largest volunteer force in the land, distributing food, sheltering the homeless, visiting the prisons, ministering in the hospitals as chaplains, comforting the bereaved and the sick and the suffering, running towards pain. We're living, living in a season, I think, of unprecedented opportunity for the church. So be encouraged. Small groups are multiplying. Alpha is flying. Let me tell you of a young man I heard of who came to faith after listening to a talk on Zoom. And somebody gave him the opportunity to respond to Jesus and invite him into his life, which he did. And then when the church opened in the summer after a period of lockdown, he was the first on the doorstep waiting to go in because he said, I want to meet my new family. We've heard those stories, I'm sure you have, over and over again over these last months. Let me tell you another man, this is very amusing, introvert, painfully shy, but with a real gift for praying for the sick. And the Lord would give him little words and impressions for people. And during this season, he rings them up, delivers his little word over the phone, prays for them, and they get healed. What do you do with that? He has loved lockdown because he doesn't have to look anyone in the eye and he doesn't have to lay a hand on the soul. And that suits him quite well. Isn't that funny? And God will use him. God is not mocked. He's not being caught out by all this. Let me tell you about another young woman I just heard about who had suffered curvature of the spine since she was born. A lot of pain, a lot of disfigurement. And during a time of worship, which she joined in on Zoom with her local church, as she was uh, there, nobody mentioned her spine. Nobody even thought of it. She suddenly felt all this movement in her back. And the pain left and her spine straightened and has been ever since. She was healed because the Holy Spirit came upon her, changed her, overwhelmed her, healed her. These are wonderful, wonderful stories of the things that the Lord is doing. The Holy Spirit changes us. The Holy Spirit empowers us. And of course, lastly, the Holy Spirit fills us. All of them we read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And there are three intriguing words for this, and I won't take long, but it's just quite interesting, because one word means um, the state of a person who is always characterised by being filled with the Spirit. It's a sort of character trait, like Stephen in the Bible, or Barnabas. It just always was. Another is in the imperfect tense, where Ephesians 5.18, where Paul talks about be filled with the Spirit, and it means go on being filled, on and on and on, in order to be holy and fruitful. And then another third one is a time when a person is inspired or overcome or empowered by the Holy Spirit for a particular commission, be it a Gideon, be it, um, oh, I don't know, we talked about Samuel and Saul, or be it about Jesus himself, or indeed be it about Peter, who ch- preached a sermon that he couldn't have anticipated that changed the world and in whose afterglow we have lived ever since. Wonderful thing. We can go on, going back to the Lord and asking to be filled again. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him, said Jesus. D.L. Moody, a wonderful 19th century evangelist. And a rather sort of um, brusque woman once went up to him and challenged him rather rudely, I think. Mr. Moody, are you filled with the Holy Spirit, she said to him. What a cheek. But he graciously said, Madam, I am. But I leak. I leak. I need it over and over again. Let me finish with this. The Puritans used continually to pray, O Lord, baptize us afresh with your Holy Spirit. And what they meant was, inundate us, Lord. Fill us again, O Lord. Empower us for service. What we might say, Lord, will you not revive us again? Let me, if I may, just pray very quickly for you all as we finish. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you are and all that you've done. Father in heaven, we thank you from the bottom of very full hearts at this point. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for your precious, precious personality. And I invite you now, come Holy Spirit, the oldest prayer of the Christian church. Vene Spiritus Sanctus, come Holy Spirit, come upon the people of Kingsgate even now. Lord, would you change things that need to be changed? Would you empower them for works of service? Would you fill them again with your presence, with your very being, that together all of us may go out, as it says in the wonderful Anglican prayer book, to live and to work to your praise and glory. And men and women all over the land said together, Amen and Amen.